that which we can be, we must be. This idea that if we're not trying and striving for our best selves, then we start to kind of dwindle and kind of atrophy. And we know that in our hearts. Other people might not realize that about us, right? But in our hearts, we're like, I know I'm not everything I could be. Right? In the back of your mind, your dreams should be real, right? And- Thanks all for tuning in to Dreamcatchers, where we make things happen. Dreamcatchers was formally launched to unlock the hidden potential in successful, self-motivated individuals who desire to take their life's work to the next level but need support to evolve. We are a collective group of professionals with various backgrounds that use our talents to assist those individuals in realizing their wildest dreams by providing education, inspiration, and direction. This podcast is where we share the lessons we've learned along the way to catching our dreams and give you some context around the how and the why to each approach to put you further ahead on the journey to catching your dream. Are you ready? Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Dream Catchers podcast. I'm your host, Jerome. I've got the grand pleasure of having my main man, Anthony, with me today. Anthony, how are things in Denver? But you're from like Minnesota. It's kind of weird right now. Yeah, I'm in a in a different location than you usually see me in. It's still cold out here, though. Like we came up here to visit some friends for Thanksgiving and you know feast on some turkey and hang out with their new baby. And I was told it was going to be warmer here than it was in Minnesota. And the first morning, I woke up to go for my run, and it was still 20 degrees. And I was like, no, like what? what? I was bamboozled. I was told it was going to be warmer, but it's it's great. You got the mountains, can't complain. Running in the mountains is a little different than running where you are. <laughs> yeah, Minnesota is not known for its elevation. You know, we're we're at like maybe 20 feet below sea level. So coming up to, you know, even 5,000 feet above uh, sea level is like pretty hard on the lungs. You, you really feel it. Without a doubt. So before we dive in, if the listeners want to get in contact with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, uh, you can find me at InvictusMultifamily.com. You can shoot me an email, Anthony at InvictusMultifamily.com. That's going to be the easiest way if you just want to you know, have a conversation. Otherwise, you can find me on LinkedIn, Anthony Vecino. I'm there all the time. So I'm pretty much everywhere. Perfect, man. So everything you do is pretty deliberate and calculated. Why Invictus and why multifamily? So yeah, Invictus is a funny name for us because actually it's a lesson in abject failure is what it actually is. Because the name Invictus means unconquered. But what actually happened was Dan and I, my business partner, we launched our company together, but it was originally named Veritas, which stands for truth. And within one day of announcing to the world, uh, Veritas Capital is here. It turns out there was another Veritas Capital out of New York, a billion dollar fund. Um, and they they slapped us down real quick. And they're like, no, we're Veritas. So we were faced with a lawsuit within the first week of launching that new name. So we decided, okay, we'll pivot to Invictus, which means unconquered. The whole idea there is kind of being tongue in cheek. Like you can, you can take our name, you can beat us down, but like, we're going to keep coming. Like it's not going to change anything. So I think some people might hear that story and they're like, Oh, you didn't prepare well enough. You should have done more trademark research. And there's probably some truth to that, but uh, we're, we're sometimes like the things that don't matter a ton. We're more about moving quickly and with momentum. And a name, you know, a name is just a name. You can always pivot and change that later. But at the core of like who you are, those are the things that you want to take time and really be deliberate and think about. And so that's where multifamily, like we spent a lot of time betting a bunch of different different types of asset classes and thinking like, do we want to be an industrial or retail or office or storage? Like, because there's 
so many different ways you could make money in real estate, but it's all about, you got to pick a niche and, and get good at that thing. And for us, multifamily was that niche. We like the underlying fundamentals of how it works from a supply and demand standpoint. Supply is limited, it's hard to build, and there's always more demand. We're a nation of renters. We're seeing that more and more as both millennials are leaning towards renting and then also the boomers as they are reaching retirement age. They're downsizing their homes, taking all that equity out, and they're going to live in, in apartments. So we like how there's just a really stable demand there. And so that's what led us to multifamily. Beautiful. And so what were you doing before you got into the multifamily space? So yeah, right before I got into multifamily, I had another I have another business right now um, that we focus on manufacturing. And so we produce polyurethane rock climbing holds. So if you've ever been to an indoor climbing gym and you see all those colorful holds on the wall, we make those holds. We distribute and supply the hardware that's used to build those walls. And so that's what I was doing before that. And concurrently and kind of before that also, I was, I, I'm a writer. So I was a science fiction and fan, fantasy author, wrote a lot about robots and lasers and things that just go boom. And that was a lot of fun. Um, and I still write, but now my focus on writing is less on fiction and more on the nonfiction, talking about mindset and habits and how we can kind of live up to our fullest potential. So I think that's something that you and I really click about because I think this is, you know, at its at its heart, what Dreamcatchers is really about is that angle. Yeah, man. Mindset's everything. So I've never talked to anybody who's a science fiction writer. Like explain more how you actually got into the space and why it was so interesting for you. You know, so it's funny how I got into it actually, because when I first started writing, I was actually a, a professional rock climber. I was living, and that, does, that sounds way more glorious than it really is. It really just means you're living in the back of a truck and a tent 100 days out of the year out in the wilderness climbing on rocks. That's, it's, it's nothing super glorious. But I was doing that, and I was engaged to a woman. And well, right before I got engaged to her, I went to her, her parents and said, hey, can I marry your daughter? And they're like, one of the questions they asked was, how are you going to support our daughter? Like, what's your grand scheme? in your life. And I was like, well, I don't really know. At that point, I was, you know, in my mid twenties, late twenties. And, um, at that point I was just kind of pursuing passions. I was a rock climber before that I was a snowboarder. Um, and just kind of, I, that's kind of how I live my life as I pursue passions and things that are really interesting to me. And, but that, that question of like, how are you going to support our daughter was like kind of eye-opening. I was like, yeah, that's a good question. Like if I'm looking forward to the future and I have somebody dependent on me, what's that going to look like? And writing had always been a part of my life since I was young my dad had really encouraged me to go that route. And I'd actually gotten a degree in English and writing in college with the idea that maybe that was a skill set that I could exploit someday. And so coming off that conversation, I decided, okay, maybe I'll just be an author. That's what I'll do. And I sat down the very next day and started writing. And um, about a year later, I had a book. It wasn't a good book. It took about another year to get a good book out of me. And then just started publishing. And this, this was at a time when you could really go one of two routes. Like the, the gates were opening in the publishing world. Before, if you wanted to publish, you had to go to the traditional route. You had to go through one of the big five publishing houses. And if they didn't want your manuscript, it was never going to see the light of day. But Amazon was really changing the game. They flipped the script and said, hey, you can go and control every aspect of this. You can do the book cover, the editing, the distribution, the marketing, all of it on your own and just do it through our platform. And you can reach this massive audience. And this was about in 2013, 2014. So it was like the golden boom time to be doing like self-publishing your own, your own works. And so I did that and quickly got a lot of traction and found like 
you know how they say if you just find a thousand true fans, you can create like a pretty powerful community, pretty powerful career out of that. And that's what I did was just niche down and found my thousand true fans and just kept growing from there, which then opened up interesting opportunities in publishing traditionally in those publishing houses. But yeah, just after a while though, one of the things is is when you have a dream and you start chasing it, sometimes you catch that dream and you realize this isn't actually what I wanted to do. It's close. But for me, writing, you know, spent I spent a lot of time locked into an office all by myself, just daydreaming and thinking about the story or the people. And when you're writing out dialogue between characters, you're you're kind of conversing with them. But you're not actually conversing or interacting with the real world at large. So what would happen is I would spend like 12 hours a day locked in my office and I wouldn't see another human until my girlfriend would come home. And that was like the only human action interaction I would ever see. And that was fine because I'm kind of introverted. And so I was like, this is great. And that was great for like the first you know year or so. And then I was like, man, this is not good for me long-term. Like, cause it's allowing me to get too comfortable and too removed from the world. I'm becoming a hermit. And so I caught the dream that I wanted, but I realized, okay, I'm going to need to tweak this and, and find a way to get outside of myself. And that's when I went and started working with some friends on building the rock climbing, climbing holds business is like, okay, this is a whole different problem set that we have to solve. It's going to force me out of my comfort zone and force me to grow. And, and one of the things that came out of that was realizing I love science fiction, but it wasn't super fulfilling for me. And that I'm telling stories that can move somebody emotionally, but they're still not like grounded in the real world and they're not actionable. And so somebody who wants to improve their life or they want to like figure out how do I go from point A to point B, this isn't actually helping them do this. This is helping them escape, which is important. Like escapism is important. We need to have entertainment. But I started to realize like that's not how I wanted to be remembered and what I wanted to contribute to the world. It was just an aspect of it. I love telling stories. But now if the stories I can tell can actually help impact people and improve their lives, then that's like far, far more meaningful. So how are you adding or weaving in stoicism with the science fiction and the nonfiction? Yeah, I think I'm a I'm big into stoic philosophy. I'm a I'm a really big fan. And one of the things I don't I don't necessarily weave it into my stories per se, but definitely when I'm talking about habits or when I'm talking about, you know, just trying to achieve our full potential, stoicism really plays a lot into that because it's this game of balancing expectations versus reality. How do you absorb the the good and the bad with equanimity so that you're never getting too off balance. You're never riding too high off of your own fumes and you're never getting too low also when things aren't going well. And for me, one of the things that the Stoics would do is they would carry around a little coin called a memento mori, where on one side of it, it would have a skull and on the other side, it would say memento mori, which means remember death. And the idea just is, hey, listen, like no matter how great you or I are and whatever we go on to build and achieve, it's just a blip in the greater cosmos's lifespan, right? Like it's just a heartbeat in the in the universe's lifespan. And so nothing that we do in the end is going to be super impactful. It's going to be forgotten. Future generations will forget us. And that frees you then to kind of like stop worrying so much about like, I need to build a legacy or I need to leave an impact or I need to, I need to do this and this and this and this. And it lets you kind of come back to where you're at and say, all I really need to do since none of this in the grand scheme matters in the, in the long, long term is all I just need to do is focus right here, right now. If this is all I have, 
then I can I will focus on just doing the best I can with what I have. And so that's what I, I write about both on the nonfiction side. The fiction side is a little bit different just because it, it's more about the characters and where the characters want to go. So I tried to pull and remove my own philosophies as much from the writing as possible and let the characters tell me their story. Wow. The characters are talking back to you. That's when they really come to life, right? Exactly. So who showed up to help you out along the way? I mean, there's just so many people and I couldn't, I'm, I'm not even aware of all the people, surely. Like, but the one that stands above and beyond the rest would definitely be my dad. Like my dad is a really influential figure in my, in my life because, you know, he was in the military um, when I was a kid and we traveled around the world and I didn't get to see him a lot. And when I did get to see him, you know, everybody thinks their dad is kind of a superhero, but like when you don't get to see your dad a lot and he's in the army and he's like larger than life, then it like really takes on that persona. And so I always took everything he said, like, to heart, like really super deeply. And he was always incredibly supportive, but he also also like held me to this realization of like my full potential. He more so than anybody I would say in my life saw that like I could do anything if I applied enough focus and gave it enough time. And that was hard, like the focus side of things, because I have ADHD. So that's like a tricky nuance. Like how do you, you know, balance like being focused with this thing that makes it very hard to focus. But for, for me, one of the most memorable, impactful conversations I ever had with my dad was I was 16. I had just won the South Dakota State Chess Championship. And I remember that event because he dropped me off in the morning and then picked me up at the end. And I, I got in the car with my big trophy and he's like, how did it go? I was like, I won. And then I was expecting, I don't know what I was expecting, but probably it's like some kind of like good job or congratulations or like or anything like that. But his response was good. You were supposed to. And that at the time, like kind of put a chip on my shoulder, but it, and it took me many years to like finally unpack that and realize that he saw like what I could be. And that was the vision that he was holding me to. And, you know, that was incredibly powerful because the only person who holds himself to a higher standard than my dad holds me is myself. And so I get, I get a little choked up when I think about this because it's really impacted the rest of my life. And every day I wake up and I say, okay, I'm not competing against anybody else. I'm, I'm competing against the person I know I could be. And this is, you know, Maslow is, I think everybody kind of knows of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Like you need to have your physiological needs and then your emotional needs and then your, your self-actualization needs kind of met. But one of the things Maslow talks about that I don't think people have ever ha have had enough exposure to is this idea of competing or becoming our best selves. And the way he breaks this down is to think of yourself on this spectrum. And every decision that you make is either moving you forward or it's moving you backwards. And moving forward, if you were to live your perfect life and become your perfect self, that means that you would have made every decision would have been a plus one decision. It would have moved you forward plus one. And that's just not true in life, right? Like we make a lot of negative ones and negative two decisions. And But the, the whole idea is if I can every day think about how do I just become plus one better? Like in this conversation, how do I become plus one better? Or how do I go and do a workout and become plus one better and keep holding myself to that that standard of who I know I could be? Because I think he has a phrase of that which we can be, we must be. This idea that if we're not trying and striving for our best selves, then we 
start to kind of dwindle and kind of atrophy. And we know that in our hearts. Other people might not realize that about us, right? But in our hearts, we're like, I know I'm not everything I could be right now. And if you're making forward progress and saying, that's okay, because I'm I'm making progress, I'm doing the best I can, that's one thing. But if you know that you're not everything that you could be, and you also realize that you're not doing everything that you could be because of you know whatever reason, because of like your own your own hangups or your priorities or the people around you for whatever reason, you know that. And that like eats and gnaws at your soul. And those are the people that, you know, they'll live, they'll live 80 years on this planet and get to the end and look back and realize, I I don't know what it was all for. Yikes. You dove deep there, man. So I've never heard of that concept from Maslow, but I do believe it's absolutely true. I think we waste the life if we don't actually live out the fullest essence of what we're capable of doing. And it's really interesting. Like you've been pursuing that your entire, I mean, the entire history that you've shared here. I mean, not a whole lot of people are willing to pursue professional rock climbing. Like I've only met one or two other people who've actually done that or said they've done it in any real capacity. So, and then you talked about focus as well, which I mean, you better be focused while you're on the mountain, right? Because if you don't, you can make a mistake and end up in trouble pretty quick. So it seems like you have these intense spats of focus and making those plus one decisions. And then it seems like you pull back and then you re-engage. Is that true? And is that intentional? Yeah, that's absolutely true. So with ADHD, it's attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And one of the really cool things about having ADHD that a lot of people don't realize is that we go in and out. And so it's not that we don't have the ability to focus. It's that we don't have the ability always to control where we focus. But when we get focused on something, we go into what's called a hyper-focused state. So this is kind of like the flow state that uh, Michele... Oh, I can't even say his last name. The guy who wrote Flow. Um, it's a really hard last name to say. He was writing about this concept. And it's it's really pronounced with people who have ADHD. Because if I get really focused on video games, I hyper-focus on it. I will lose you know, weeks and, and in the blink of an eye and not even realize it. And so my life has been kind of about trying to create structures and systems where the things I'm likely to focus on are good for me. So I'm surrounding myself with with things that would be good to focus on. But the result of that is that I can't live a thousand percent in a hyper-focused state. Like you just burn out, my interest wanes, it goes somewhere else and I can't always control that. And so I try to live my life in a way where I have these big goals, but I try to find as much pleasure as I can in the individual process, the journey on the day-to-day basis and not to get too hung up on the goal itself. Because maybe in three years, I will get to the end of that time. I'll start to have something else that's starting to crop up and become really interesting to me. And I want to have a life where I'm like, I'm really passionate about what I'm doing. And the way for me to do that is to to just be paying attention to where my, my attention wants to go. Right now, it's like, for the last couple of years, it's been real estate. It's been building a manufacturing business and, you know, writing as well. Like, these are things that I'm very, very passionate about where, like, I don't, I don't really rock climb anymore. I've, I've rock climbed maybe once in the last year. And there was a time for a decade where that's all I did every day, all day. And I think that scares a lot of people because we start to self-identify with the label of whatever it is that we're doing. So I'm a rock climber. And so 
I need to do that all the time. And but even when the passion's not there anymore, the interest is somewhere else. Like if you if you pigeonhole yourself there, then you feel shackled by this passion, and then the passion loses its power. And so I try to not live above the labels. I just try to not attach myself to labels. Like, oh, are you an are you an author? Or do you consider yourself an investor? Or are you, a, you know, an entrepreneur? Like, what what are you? I'm like, yeah, I'm all that. Like, I'm all that. And then I'm also a guy that likes to work out. And I'm also a guy that likes to hang out with my girlfriend. And like, I'm all of those things. And it's not not one of not one in particular. For people who maybe have a dream and they're stuck in a W two job, but they're afraid to pursue that dream because they they're like, I'm an accountant. Like, but what I want to do is I want to be a singer. Well, they've 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 labeled themselves as an accountant. They haven't labeled themselves as a singer. But if they labeled themselves like and used the power of that and said, "I'm a singer who's just accounting right now," it changes the game, right? And now they can go do that thing. But even better would just to be like to remove the label entirely and say, "Hey, I'm doing this right now, but that's my passion. That's where I'm moving towards." What's up, tribe? It's your host, Jerome. I just want to let you know that we put together a free 15-point checklist for exiting the matrix. Jump on over to dreamshouldbereal.com in order to pick your free copy up. Let's get back to the show. So, (laughs) this is where the mindset comes in, right? It's, you've got to be able to see it in order to achieve it. It happens twice. You see it in your mind and then you see it in the physical. The have you ever had a W two or have you always kind of freelanced and done your own thing? Oh no, I've had a ton of W twos. A ton. I've worked so many jobs, but I've never had what I would call a W two career. And and that's maybe the difference is I go into it if I if I had a W-2 job, I go into it and saying, this is just my job right now, but this isn't my career. This isn't the dream that I'm building. It was always to like fulfill a short-term need. So maybe that's, you know, you don't make a ton of money rock climbing. So that could be in the off season, I'm going to go and uh, start a high rise window washing company with my buddy and we'll just do that. Or it's like, I'm going to go work in this gym for a little bit coaching and, and working with the crew there. And so I've definitely worked a ton of W-2 jobs, but for me, Bill Gates has a quote uh, something to the effect of, I would rather hire a lazy A player than a hardworking B player. Because the lazy A player is going to figure out how to do the job faster and with less work. And for me, I've always been a lazy A player when it comes to working for other people, but I don't want to be lazy. I don't like it goes back to Maslow's hierarchy. Like I know what I could be and I don't want to be a lazy A player. I want to be a hardworking A player, but I know I can't be that when it comes to working for another person. And so I have to be in full control and like in chasing the the passion. So that's where the entrepreneur in me comes out. But, you know, not everybody has that. Some people are really good, like at working in a W-2 or in that corporate environment, or like they're a really good number two or number three in the hierarchy. And so it's about understanding your, your strengths, your weaknesses, your personality, and like what works for you. I just know that as soon as somebody is paying me a check for a job, I... I find I just lose the interest in it. But if I'm out there earning the money, like through working with clients and customers or, you know, partnerships and we're we're building something, that's just yeah, I, I I'll burn myself out doing that in a good way. So is the motivation just the fact that you earned it on your own? Or like what is driving the loss of interest if you're on salary or on hourly? I think it's about building I I, I like building things. 
And I like to stand back and be able to say, I built that thing. And there's a lot of like maybe ego tied up into that. But there's something about if it's my thing that I'm building and it breaks and it's horrible, it doesn't work out because I've had a lot of success in my life, but I've had way more failures. Like for everything that I've done well, there's been 10 that I did really, really poorly. But those things, they're all my failures, they're all my successes. And I can point to them and say, hey, I helped, I built that. And of course, it's always a team aspect, right? Like real estate, Dan and I were building this thing together and we have a, a great team of people around us that enable that to happen. But when I know that at the end of the day, the decisions that are going to lead to success or failure, that they stop with me, that makes me feel fulfilled. Living in an environment where I'm just collecting a paycheck and I'm passing the decision up the chain to some other person to make it, which I might agree with, I might disagree with. And now it's on them. I, that doesn't, I don't like that. Like I want to, I want to be the person who either made the right call or the wrong call. But at the end of the day, I made the call and I, I, I get to live with the consequences of that. Give me the ball at the end of the game and let me make the game win and shot or game win and play. So Tell me about the time when you realized you had to keep going. Like I call this the red pill moment. It's when it's like, there's no going back now. I'm outside and I'm going to stay outside. Hmm. That's a great question. That's such a hard one because I think in this world, you're faced with that red pill moment kind of a lot, almost daily. Every day is an opportunity to just kind of pull the parachute and be like, ah, I got to get out of this. This is scary because it is a little, like it's a little terrifying to chase dreams and like be out there on your own with no net. But I, I think for me, the, the the moment that is probably the most pivotal in my life was the woman that I mentioned earlier. I was engaged to. And I started writing, and about a year or two later, we en- we ended up breaking up, and it, it ended up happening really quickly within the span of a week. And it was effectively like one of those, hey. I want you out of the house in two days type of things. She's like, I, I, want, I want to be done with this. Uh, you just got to go. It's like, where am I going to go? Like, like, we have one car. This is our home. Like, what do I do? And so I called my dad up and I was like, what do I do? He's like, like, figure it out. You're comfortable, you know, in uncomfortable situations. So like your living needs, they're, they're low. You don't need to be living in like a really nice apartment or a nice house. Like you, that's one of the strengths that you have. And I was like, that's true. So I went and I bought a van from a church, like a, a 15 passenger van. And I fixed up the back, built a bed back there. And I lived in the back of that van in downtown Oakland for four months while I kind of figured out what I was doing with my life and why I'd been doing them. Because up to that moment, I, you know, I started writing books because it was a way of like producing and providing this lifestyle for us. And now, oh, that reason for doing the thing was no longer there. And so then I had to look at it and be like, oh, well, what's the reason moving forward? Why, why keep doing this? Why don't, should I just go back to my old life of rock climbing or to like the, any other number of things I could do? Or what am I going to do from here on out? And that was the moment, like sleeping in that van and, and like sleeping in downtown Oakland in the back of the van is kind of scary. Like I'll just say that, like um, when you're in this big white panel van, people just like, would constantly try to come and get in it for whatever reason. Like they don't know it, but they're breaking into your home and you're like, get out of here. But there was a lot of nights there where I just had to kind of, I had to address that question of like, what am I doing and why am I doing it? Because before that moment, I was very outcome and goal oriented. I want to be a rock climber. I want to climb that cliff or I want to win that chess tournament or I want to win that snowboarding competition. And now it was, what are the outcomes that I'm shooting for? Where do I want to go? And more importantly, who do I want to be? Like, that was what I really came to at the end of the day was 
starting to figure out like, do I like the person that I am? Because that relationship ended for a lot of reasons that had to do with like my personality, my failures, like as an individual. And so I had a lot of unpacking and growing there to do. And that eventually led me to this idea of like, okay, you're not doing everything in your power right now to be the best you possible. You're doing everything in your power right now to be the best rock climber or the best writer. And you've gone so deeply into that, that you've let all these other weaknesses manifest themselves and you're bad in relationships. You're, you're bad at keeping in touch with friends and like you're bad at being present when you're with people. Like, and, and so I would say that's been the red pill moment more so than any other thing. And it wasn't about like leaving corporate America to go pursue a dream necessarily. It was about who do you want to be and what are you going to start doing to like take steps towards becoming that person? And I think that's the red pill moment for everybody, right? It's making that decision of internal internally and then manifesting it externally. And it shows up in the decisions that you start making. But inside, you make a decision, hey, this is going to be different in order for me to actually live out my values and interests and desires. So I think you hit the nail on the head there. Anthony, what's been your worst fear in this process? And how'd you break through it? You know, it goes back to the memento mori, that idea that we don't live very long and we don't know how long we're going to live. Like right now, I think a lot of us, we, we think like, even when we hear like, hey, life could end at any moment, you're not guaranteed the next next instant. We still hear that and we still think, yeah, in 10 years, I might just have a stroke or something, right? It's like, no, like right now, right in the middle of this conversation, in the middle of this sentence, I could just have a stroke and fall over and like, that's that could be the end of the game for me. And so that that fear of death, it's not even a fear of death. It's a fear of leaving potential on the table. And this idea that there's not a lot of time. I don't know how much I have. I just know I have this moment right now. And I have so many things I want to build. that I'm afraid of like leaving a lot of that potential on the table. But that then is also the driver to wake up every day and like to spend the time I have effectively. Like I have this moment right now to share this, this, you know, my story and have this conversation with you so I can be fully present in this. And then once we're done, I'm going to go and be with my friends and my girlfriend and our dog up here in the mountains. And I'm going to be fully present in that and like try to own this moment that I have. And that's the only way that I can conquer that fear because otherwise it can be so debilitating to think like all the, the things that you could do, but that you might never have the time to do. So was there a point when everything was on the line? You know, in hindsight, it all, it, like when you're in the moment, it always feels like that. You've, you, you've, you've probably had like a dozen of those moments in life where you're like, this is it. This is the game winning shot. But then you realize like, there's always another game winning shot. You know, next week, there's another game. And then the week after that, there's another game. There's always another game winning shot. As long as you stay in the game, there's going to be game winning shots. And so... I look back and I'm like, you know, I could look at that living in the van experience or I could look at you know, like countless other experiences where I was like, this is it. My back's to the wall. If I don't win this right now, it's game over. And at the time, it feels like life and death. But now with time and distance and hindsight, you look back and you realize, no, that actually it could have gotten so much worse. Like I thought that was rock bottom, but I could have gone. So it could have been so much worse. Like. I could have I could have been paralyzed when uh, when I was rock climbing in the mountains. I could have like no longer have the the function of my legs, or you know I could have hit my head and now I, I have a hard time articulating myself. I can't write anymore, and like that would be a big loss for me. So, like there's all these ways where we feel like oh it couldn't get any worse than this, but with time and distance and hopefully with perspective, you can see, realize like, oh no, I, I had so much further I could go still. And so that's that's freeing then, I think, as you start to internalize that and move forward into 
the new problems. Cause then if you can remember like, Hey, it's never quite as bad as you think it's, it is in the moment it always feels worse. If you can just keep that in, in your mind, it can help to get through that and just keep moving forward. That's interesting because I think a lot of people have traumatic experiences where they think that's the end of the road. And that's it. And if I don't do it right now, if I don't perform right now, then it's over. And you're saying on the backside of that, that when you get some distance and you really reflect on it, it's really never as bad as it seems. Yeah. And often those failures, even if it was as bad and it played out exactly as horrible as you thought it would like that, those failures are still the moments of learning and growth. And those you don't know. I think it's Nassim Taleb who talks about in his book, Fooled by Randomness, this idea that we don't understand like we think we do what inputs led to the outcomes. Because when things occur, we look at that and say, of course they occurred. They could have, like, no other alternative could have happened. Of course it played out this way. And so we look back on these events and we create this narrative of, of course it happened this way, but we don't actually know that. We don't know if we had gone left at that moment instead of going right, what would have happened. And in a really interesting story I heard the other day I wanna share, um, that was kind of impactful for me. It was just, you know, a little analogy. It was this idea of this guy who lived his, his life fascinated with military and like the famous generals and war strategy and battle strategy and how to be a great leader. Like he was always really fascinated with that. And then when he was 18, he had the opportunity to go into the army. The army recruiter came to him, but he was afraid to take that step and go into that into that place because it's terrifying to him. And so he never went there, but he continued throughout his entire life fascinated and dreaming about the military and being a grand general and like studying all these men who and women who have gone on to do fantastic things. And when he finally died, he goes up to St. Peter and he asks St. Peter, because he's always been wondering, like, who is the greatest general of all time? Was it Napoleon? Was it Rommel? Was it you know Eisenhower? Who was it? And St. Peter looks at him and he's like, it was you. You would have been the greatest general if you just would have answered that call you know and that's the the thing like you don't know weird decisions you can't always see how it's going to play out because we don't have this omnipresent view right you just have to trust that you're doing the best that you can and you're making the best decisions that you have and every decision you're just saying okay what's the plus one what's the what's the plus one here and at that moment for him was joining the military because he's like this is the this is where i fear the fear and I need to run towards the fear because that's where growth occurs. He would have made that plus one step. Instead, he said, I'm afraid I'm not going to do that. So he took the negative one step. And then, you know, that's not a real story, but it's a it's a helpful way to like frame the conversation, I think. But I don't think most people are doing their best, Anthony. I think a lot of people know that they aren't living out the life of someone who's inspired. I think they're just kind of melanin in and halfway showing up with the understanding that, hey, they're going to get comped anyway because they're on salary or they're getting paid hourly. They're getting paid for their time, not their contribution. So what do you say to those people who are not living out an inspired life and doing the best that they can with what they have? That's hard. I, I don't know what I would say because I think that motivation has to somehow manifest itself. They have to come to this point where they realize, like, I'm not what I could be. You know, this is, again, the Maslow's hierarchy of like realizing you're not doing what you could be doing and your life as a result is not what it could be and you're dissatisfied with it. Um, and there's probably not much I can say or do that's going to convince you to change that. It's going to have to come from you. Like 
getting maybe fed up and saying enough of this, like I can be more and I can do more. But what I can do, what I can do for you is I can be an example of a person who is not their best self, but who's trying. And I can maybe just pull open the door ever so slightly and give you permission to join me on inside that, you know, that journey. And, and that's all I can, that's all I can do. And I think for most of us, if you, if you take care of yourself and you focus on like this journey of becoming everything that you could be and like what that really means, then the people around you see that and they become positively affected because they, they either have to do one of two things. They either need to look at you and go, I want that too. Or they need to look at it and say, oh, no, that's too hard. Or I'm not ready. I'm not willing to do that. And that's what most people do. And that's okay for them. That's their decision. But at some point, you're going to positively impact somebody who could be positively impacted. I'm, I'm a big fan of not trying to sell people that are never going to buy. You know, Go to the people that are a maybe. Don't go to the people who are no. Work on the maybes. There's so many maybes out there. Let the no's kind of work themselves until they get to a maybe. But work on the maybes, get them to a yes. And that's a better time, like a use of my time. Because I'm not, I'm not here trying to like create paradigm shifts for people. I'm just out here trying to be the best that I can be. And I think that's all any of us can really strive to be. And if both we do that, if we achieve that one goal, the trickle out effects to our community, our families, our friends, the people around us, it's enormous. I love it. So you're living it out through your example then? Trying to. You know, every moment's another moment to try and make that plus one decision. And I don't I I probably fail more often than I succeed still. So it's it's a journey. So what are you most grateful for, man? You know, I do, uh, I have a regular gratitude practice every morning where I journal three things that I'm grateful for. And then I meditate for an hour. And for 20 of that, 20 minutes of that hour, I just go through a list of things. That's beautiful, man. Yeah. So I had the, the meditation practice and for 20 minutes of that, I just focus on what I'm grateful for in that moment, that instant. And that could be, you know, the sun's shining on my face and that feels great. Or it could be that, oh, I feel the cold on my skin right now because the basement's cold. But that reminds me of the fact that I have the ability to put on a, a clothes, that I have clothes I can put on. Or I could go turn up the temperature and be grateful for the fact that I have control over my environment, which a lot of people don't, don't have. So I think for me, the thing I'm the most grateful for is that I have my health and I have my mind. Like, because without those two things, everything else is is for naught. It's like I think Seneca said, "The healthy man wants a thousand things, but the sick man only wants one." And when if you've ever been really sick, or even just mildly sick, because I'm a wimp when I'm sick, I it's like the end of the world for me. I can just have like a, the sniffles, but it feels like I'm dying. When you're sick, all you want to do is be better. And so right now, my my greatest gratitude is that I'm just not sick. Like I'm healthy. I have my mind. I have my faculties. I have love in my life. I'm like, what more do you need? That's absolutely beautiful. I remember when I was in a wheelchair, all I wanted to do was walk, right? And so you get clarity when you experience some yeah. of the extremes. So I guess we've got, we're down to the last three, man. And I think the first one is, what are you most focused on catching next? You know, so we're building this real estate company and we're trying to you know, buy buildings. But at the end of the day, it's like, what's the point of it? And the point of it is to make a positive impact on as many lives as possible. And this is one of the things that attracted to me real, to multifamily is because you can go, you could, you could think of it like, oh, I'm going to go buy this 30 unit building. 
and I'm going to have 30 tenants. Or you can think of it as like, I'm giving a live, like a great living opportunity to 30 families. They, they're entrusting me to, to provide this service to them. And that's amazing and that's impactful. And for me, one of my goals is to impact as many families as possible through that, whether that's through helping you know, people find a great place to live or helping our investors get outside of the rat race of the stock market, take control of their financial freedom, and really understand what it means that to have real estate playing a meaningful part in that. And then I think on the broader level, one of the things that led me away from writing science fiction and writing more in nonfiction is I want to write things and I want to have an impact on people's lives. I want to be, I've always thought of myself, if you were to say, Anthony, at your core, what are you? I would say, I'm a storyteller. That's what I try to do is I try to tell stories and I want the stories that I tell to have the maximum impact. And I realized, you know, I can tell impactful stories with robots and lasers and aliens but the most impactful ones are the ones about you know, our personal journey, our growth and our failures and, and hopefully some of our successes as well. I think stories is the best way to make the lessons real. And I think a lot of the other stuff is just kind of esoteric and difficult for people to reach. But as soon as you make it practical with a story, they're able to grasp it and apply it against the problems that they're facing in their world. Is storytelling the gift that you're giving the world or do you have another gift that you're giving the world? You know, this ties right back into what we talked about a little bit ago. I think, I don't know if storytelling is my greatest gift. All I know is that I think my, I think my greatest gift is just to be my best self, whatever that means. It's like the idea that you can't help your friend out of the well until you're anchored well enough yourself. Otherwise you're just going to get pulled in there. And so the thing that I focus on is be the best Anthony that I can be. Don't, don't try and be the, you know, the best Jerome. Like I, I can never be the best Jerome. Jerome's the best Jerome. I, I can be the best Anthony. And if I do that, then it gives permission for the people around them to be the best versions of themselves. And, and I think that's the greatest gift any of us can give one another. It's just the permission of like seeing like, man, look at Jay over there, like living his best life, doing this and struggling. And I can see his, his, successes, but I can also see his failures. And that opens the door for me to go, I can do this too. And that's a great gift, more so than stories, more so than you know, money or giving or anything else. It's just that that permission to say, you can do this too. Letting people peek in and understand what it really is instead of just trying to emulate the outcomes, really emulating the process and understanding the steps that it took to get there. So the final question, I wrap every podcast up with this one is, What's the one thing you want people to take away from our talk? Yeah, you don't have the time that you think you do. You don't. Like act now. Life is, you know, it's, it can be long. It can be beautiful or it can be really short and beautiful, but you don't know how much you have. So you need, to, you need to keep that at the forefront of your mind always and realize that there's never a better time than the time right now to start taking that action. But it doesn't have to be massive action. I think this is where a lot of people get, get you know, messed up and you talk about now... I don't worry about you know going hunting Moby Dick. Just get the tuna in the boat. And it's that idea that just focus on the next plus one, and then the next one, and then the next one after that. Win those small daily battles, and you're going to win the inevitable war. But don't get so hung up to think like I need to go and just do, ba 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 ba. I need to change my entire life overnight. Like just hey, next plus one. What's that going to be for you? Is that go and drink some water? Okay, that's cool. No more soda for me today. I'm just going to plus one that, or I'm going to go get my workout and I'm going to go tell a loved one that I appreciate them. I love them. Like what's your plus one going to be? Just 
start winning those battles and maybe set yourself a goal of like, I'm going to have, I'm going to be plus 10 by the end of the day. And then go look and find those opportunities to, to make a plus one 10 times over. And you do that long enough and you, you can't help but grow. You can't help but make forward progress. That's beautiful. We talk about playing solitary in the next logical step, right? You got your North Star, you know where you're headed, but you know what's the thing you need to do right now that's going to start taking you down that path and put you in the right direction. So wonderful way to wrap up this episode of the Dreamcatchers podcast. Anthony, super grateful for you living out your best life and allowing us to watch you do that. And having the courage to share the wins and the losses with folks and capture that through the art of storytelling for me is super exciting. And, you know, we've been interacting through LinkedIn and a couple of different episodes of your podcast over the course of the last year. And then one day I just went and did a deep dive on Anthony. I was like, man, this is super interesting. I got to get him on the show. And so here we are. And I'm super excited to have you drop this episode not too long from now. And so with that, guys, we're going to wrap this one up. Your dreams should be real. You're totally accountable for that because you heard me say it. And I really hope you enjoy what Anthony and I shared today. Talk to you guys soon. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. Until the next time, remember that your dreams should be real.